1: to season three episode seven of history's greatest idiots the show where we look back through all of human history and bring you shining examples of moderate to severe stupidity so that you can take <laughs> lessons from them and never repeat those mistakes again but who are we kidding we're humans we like making mistakes and i i long for the day when people acknowledge it as a necessary thing so that we can continue getting idiots for this podcast so Yeah, please continue to screw up. Joining me as ever is my amazing co-host, Derek. Derek, how are things going over in Arizona right now? Pretty good, I think. I mean, uh, baseball's in full swing with the boy, and I think we
0: got senior night on Tuesday. I get to throw a pitch to him. It'll be the first time he's hit since, like, sophomore year.
1: No, that's (laughs) so cool. So you're
0: going to throw the pitch to him? Uh, One of them in the opening. There's, like, the whole big senior day... um, Event where like he's gonna give his mom a rose and we throw a thing and he's starting the game, which is neat. It's a super nice thing that they're doing there.
1: That's really cool. We don't, we don't really. I mean, I, I I say that we get like performances in this country, like school plays and talent nights and stuff like that, but we don't really get like honoring the parents as much as like a kind of a focus of the the school kind of interactivity thing that the the most you get for that is like parents night where you'll go to oh so and so is doing so well in like maths you you should be so proud then you go to the next one it's like it's such a fuck up in physics like what is wrong with you you're terrible parents but like, yeah uh, that's really cool that you get that kind of interaction with everyone that's a really nice bonding moment wow yeah i'm excited for it it should be a good time yeah, it should be as well. So baseball's in full swing. Um, the the weather's getting really nice here. And I really... Um, so this weekend, didn't really have too much in the way of plans. I did some voiceover recording yesterday. Obviously did the writing for today. And just kind of chilled. And then I went to the cinema in the evening and watched Air with uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and hmm. Jason Bateman. And... Uh, it, it, and... Viola Davis it's about uh Michael Jordan signing with Nike oh and tr- transforming the fortunes of I've got to pay more attention
0: to like what the hell's going on in the world
1: yeah <laughs> it's um it's actually really good so there's been like a few um kind of corporate story biopic type things in the last few years I think it really started with the social network which was you know hugely successful on a big Oscar thing and we have the Tetris movie. film sorry that was a good movie. It was really good. My mother liked that, and she does not like technology. So you can tell <laughs> a film is good when the core principle of the film draws in someone who hates her phone. So yeah, um, you know, uh, I I um, really enjoyed that. There was a Tetris film recently, which um, I th- was that Disney or Apple Plus? It was one of the two. I think it was Apple Plus in the UK. Yeah, I think, I th- yeah. think it, it is here too. Mm, Taron yeah, Egerton. Yeah, it was in it. He's he's in it, and a couple of other like moderately famous people. There's a famous actor playing Robert Maxwell, and he's hilarious as Robert Maxwell. And he's like, "Wow, it's I, I spotted the accent immediately. I was like, I recognize you." But um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's it was good. But you know, it's straight outside it because I kind of seen the Tetris story of how they got it out of like the USSR when it was collapsing. That element is true, but like they involve characters and people and elements of the story way more than stuff that actually happens so it's like it's based on reality but a lot of the stuff that happened is complete bullshit and <laughs> i get the sense and I, I mean it's a good film tetris i really recommend it so if you if you want something that's really interesting kind of a bit weird go and watch tetris it's, it's quite a good fun film air is obviously like it's a heavy hitter like he's got these big names involved it's about nike it involves conversations with converse and adidas and mentions of big name celebrities and uh, there's a bunch of like i said famous people in the film i am i don't know the story of nike because they apparently had a 17 percent market share of the basketball trainer sneaker industry at one point in time and the leader was converse and then it was adidas and they were like a distant third i don't know how much of this like underdog story Rise, we'll plan this. We're different, we think differently. How much of it is like, um, creating something using the benefit of hindsight, making it a legend, you know, Maybe. where they embellish stuff and because they know what's going to happen, it's like you know what's going to happen, but they inject drama that probably didn't happen to keep you going. I just don't know, you know, eh, it's what makes good movies, it's storytelling, you know,
0: it is. I yeah. think the best story of the like the origin story is Prefontaine. That movie about Steve Prefontaine, who was a track star that created the Nike running shoes, Nike running shoes, whatever. That's Bob.
1: right. Yeah, um, I, he isn't actually mentioned in the film. They talk about the running shoe quite a lot because that was their big thing. Context of the night story. Sorry, Doctor J. Um, hello and welcome. We're talking about a film I saw in the cinema last night called Air. It's out. It's on Amazon as well because I sat down and it said Amazon Studios. I was like, man, I could have watched this at home. What the fuck's wrong with me? <laughs> uh, so I watched it. Um, it's a, it, and like you say, storytelling wise, it's a great story. There's some excellent performances. Viola Davis is so good in it. Um, Chris Tucker's in it he's really good I was quite impressed with him as well yeah uh, Matt Damon's obviously good because Matt Damon is like super consistent. Ben Affleck's good because he's like not quite normal. Ben Affleck, he's slightly different. I like that. This is a... <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not, not like, normal Ben Affleck. He's not standard, possibly sleeping with prostitutes and gambling his money away. Ben Affleck, the 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 thing that they embellished in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I really liked the film. It was a great story, really well told. And it's one of those things where there's not massive stakes. So you're like, okay, I can sit down and I can enjoy, enjoy this, and I'm not gonna feel like guilty about anything or like have a weird, like bubbling sense. Like if you want a nice, gentle, well told film, I thought Air was really good. Another one that is just coming to my mind now. Have you ever seen the founder? Oh, With yeah. Michael Keaton, yeah, about yeah. the yeah. McDonald's story. That was interesting as well, about how this guy just basically fucked the McDonald's brothers out of For real creation. Yeah. So um, I can't remember his name now, but Roy Croc. Um, yeah that's it it? yeah Yeah. really really great film and and again full of held together by a really a bunch of really strong performances particularly by michael keaton but um yeah i would highly recommend those so there's like a lot of corporate stories coming up in cinema now and i guess you know a lot of corporate mergers and structures and there's been god knows how many films made about steve jobs um (laughs) three or something at this point um you know they're interesting because you take what is essentially a rags to riches story or a rise or a fall or whatever it might be. And you kind of infuse it with Hollywood bullshit. And oh, like, yeah. it becomes a great film. And I, re- I really enjoyed air. So if you get a chance to watch air, it's to- it's like, there's a lot of '80s in it as well, so if you, you nostalgia freaks out there, you're gonna love it. <laughs> so um yeah, definitely check that out. Obviously, the story of Michael Jordan signing with Nike and how that completely transformed the fortunes of that entire company. Apparently, he still earns four hundred million dollars a year in passive income to this day from his Nike deal. Well, I would imagine
0: he's got his own yeah. line, the the Air Jordans. Yeah, and Jordan. he was
1: the first person to supposedly get that, and uh, one of the stipulations was he gets a cut. Of every shoe sold and that had never happened before that's
0: that's a good deal right there man that's
1: a yeah man like a a percentage you give me two percent of everything uh oh sorry wouldn't a great corporate story 1930s to 40s be great yeah fiat and hugo boss 1930s to 40s that there's an interesting corporate story right there uh maybe not maybe we don't go into that or uh peugeot or any bmw um adidasler yeah who kept his adidas name adolf sorry what i said adidas was in on that market weren't they? oh yeah his he kept the name adolf until he died I even talk about it in the film because he's matt damon's character's talking to the agent he's like oh you know he kept the name adolf until the day he died like well nobody really worried about that it's very sad that he's recently died he's left quite a legacy behind and then it goes back to matt damon you know he was in the hitler youth right you know, he, he was like an actual Nazi. And he's like, look, let's not forget it. Let's not talk about that. He's brought a lot of joy to a lot of people, and he employs a lot of people. And now Michael Jordan's family are going to go over and meet Adidas in their headquarters in Nuremberg. And Matt Damon's like, Nuremberg, really? You're not seeing the connection here. <laughs> so um, this, is, this is what my doctorate is in. Oh, that's cool. Jay, that's really interesting. Ty- I am... Type out what your doctorate's in. I That sounds really cool. I'm intimidated now. We've got somebody with a doctor, an actual doctor. Yeah. I'm glad my mother doesn't listen and join in. Cause then we'd have a, <laughs> we'd have a fucking professor as well. So that'd be really annoying. Uh, so anyway, I've had a nice time, Derek, you're doing good. The stuff happening with your son. Uh, let's get into the idiots. Shall we? Who is your idiot for this week? Okay.
0: Well, so it's baseball season again, like I said, mm-hmm. and I wanted to try and tie my idiot to the sport, uh, you know, is 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 normally the case for me. I kind of ended up somewhere different, but it, there's baseball in it, so stick with me. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> his real passion, though, was gambling and a little crime. But you know, <laughs> his <laughs> name. Go on. Oh, sorry, oh.
1: But I, I was going to say it's not. Um, it's not our man. Um, what's his name again? Is it uh the guy who th- bet on uh baseball?
0: Oh no, nope. No, it's not. No. Okay. Somebody <laughs> totally different. Okay, cool. His name is Arnold the Brain Rostine. And okay. uh, I th- think he, he he fits in with the hi- history's greatest idiots. If you can call somebody with a nickname, the brain, an idiot.
1: <laughs> but, wow. Uh, Sorry. Hey, look at that. we got, we got some good interaction going here today. We have. Thank you, Dr. J. Yes, your, your uh, PhD in the actions of GM, Ford and IBM in Nazi Germany. That I, I would love to read that. I don't normally like to read doctoral theses, but I have read a few, particularly from applicants, and that sounds really cool. So yeah, it's okay. Derek, please continue. Sorry okay. for the interruptions.
0: It's we're we're good to go here. So we're on Arnold Rothstein. He's born on January seventeenth, eighteen eighty-two, in Manhattan, mm-hmm. to wealthy Ashkenazi Jewish family. Right. Um. I guess there's debate about when he was born, but it's either eighteen eighty-two or eighteen eighty-three. Most Mm -hmm. of them are 1882, so that's what I'm going with. Sure, Uh, okay. Anyway, so he's born into the wealthy family of upstanding business elites. His father, Abraham, was like the perfect picture of the American success story, working his way up in New York's Garment District. Cool. Uh, The New York governor, Al Smith, even referred to him as Abe the Just in reference to his uh, reputation and philanthropy and honesty. That's good. And his son Arnold is just nothing like him. Um, anyway, he goes on to be uh, chairman of the board for the Beth Is uh, New York's Beth Israel Hospital, mm-hmm. and his relationship with Arnold's older brother Harry is really close. And oh, right. it's believed that Arnold kind of craved attention and was resentful of that relationship, so he started mm-hmm. acting out, and it might have led to his uh, rebellion in the first place.
1: Right. Okay.
0: Um. Boy, I lost my spot. Mm. That's okay. <laughs> uh, by all accounts, he was highly skilled at math and super intelligent. So, right. super intelligent idiots are my thing. <laughs> uh, he was not really interested in school, though. So, at 16, he dropped out to pursue other interests. And those other interests were gambling and crime. Kind of oh, like Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> uh, even as a child, he had a thing for gambling and. Once he began to indulge, he never stopped, no matter how often his father was scolding him uh, for shooting dice or, you know, running numbers. He just didn't stop. And when he was asked, actually, one time in 1921 how he became a gambler, he replied, I always gambled. I can't remember when I didn't. Maybe I gambled (laughs) just to show my father he couldn't tell me what to do, but I don't think so. I think I Mm. gambled because I loved the excitement. When I gambled, nothing else mattered.
1: That's really sad. Kind of. Yeah. Basically you're okay. rejecting reality and yeah. Y- yeah, that's really sad. The real I, world isn't uh, enough.
0: I took it different. <laughs> this is my drug of choice and I'm going to stay <laughs> numb. Um, anyway, yeah, so he starts frequenting neighborhood pool halls and gambling dens and hanging out with, you know, the people that hang out in those places, mostly cool. criminal types, but also some high level politicians and some businessmen cause, you know, not everybody's perfect. No, that's true. Uh, in 1901, he falls in love with a showgirl, an actress named Carolyn green. And it was just the excuse he needed to really break away from his father. Cause Carolyn was only half Jewish on her father's side. So when Arnold Rothstein's father demanded that she convert and continue her relationship or in order to continue the relationship, she refused. And Abe declared that he no longer had a second son if he was going to violate the rules of Judaism and marry outside of the faith. So two well, years later, him and Caroline go and get married in Saratoga Springs and off he goes.
1: That's really sad. I I, I don't like the whole disowning family stuff. It, it, ma- it makes me so sad. You cut off from so much support in those moments and really you know i understand circumstances that i think there was one john adams america's second president cut off one of his sons after like decades of like kind of failures and and horrible behavior and stuff and that's somewhat understandable but actually the majority of the time you are doing far more harm than good but yeah it's that's so sad
0: but he, he 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 became a millionaire, so it's not too sad. Anyway, well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he also died really young. So anyway, 1910, he moves to the Tenderloin section of Manhattan and he sets up his own shop. He opens a really important casino and he starts investing in horse track or uh, horse racing track at uh, or in Maryland. Right. And he may or may not have fixed a bunch of the races he wanted that track. But. Whatever. He was also yeah. booking bets on baseball and elections and prize fights. And he may have fixed some of those things as well. But I'll get into oh. that in a minute. Uh, you might you might remember him from uh, Boardwalk Empire. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, that yeah. rings a bell now. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's such a good show.
0: It wow. is. And yeah. I think they do a really good job of kind of capturing uh, Arnold's character mm. because from what i was reading and researching he was just like the dude that played him on there it was slightly yeah. embellished but still but- anyway so he's doing all of these gambling things and racetracks and fixing elections and prize fights and that puts him in an interesting position to be a go-between for criminals cops politicians and businessmen
1: right which is probably quite a lucrative position to be in i'd imagine as the kind of the the buffer between all these different interests.
0: It really was, because he started working as a fixer. And for those that are unfamiliar with that term, it's somebody that kind of smooths over a rocky relationship between law mm. enforcement and the people that are breaking it. Mm. And he acts as a mediator, but we'll get into that also in a minute. Uh so yeah. he becomes this gambling legend. Uh he's raking in winnings, carrying around wads of cash. Uh, he earns a nickname, the big bankroll, because he likes to
1: carry around a wad of $100 bills. And this is, sorry, this is the 1910s, 20s now? It's still 1910 to
0: 1914, 17.
1: Yeah. We don't go much further than that. So so he's carrying around essentially like a normal person's lifetime earnings. Kind of. any one time. <laughs>
0: And it, he was oh doing God. that for a reason, though. It was because if any deal presented itself, he wanted to be able to take care of it right there. Yeah, exactly. So n- no time to hesitate. Now, when I was saying he rigged most of the games that he bet on, he did, and it led to massive winnings. Like He uh-huh. even perpetuated the idea himself by saying that he would bet on anything but the weather because he couldn't control it. Wow. Okay. So the by by his 30s, he was a millionaire, sure. And by okay. the end of the decade, his gambling joint was really popping. He's, he's being followed around by entourage or an entourage of gangsters that oh, went with him everywhere he sure. went, acting as his security. And some of those people you might have heard of them: uh, Meyer Lansky,
2: oh, Charles Lucky
0: Luciano. Wow. Anyway, so he's those mentoring are... this yeah. next generation of business-minded mobsters.
1: Those are, those are huge names. Meyer Lansky, wasn't he involved? Uh, no, maybe I'm thinking someone else. I thought he was maybe involved in Vegas. but
0: I believe so. Yeah, yeah.
1: maybe. This that, is, those this are is two the, huge names.
0: The beginning of organized crime is this guy. So, like, if most people say Lucky Luciano was the father of modern organized crime, mm-hmm. and so that would make Arnold Rothstein, like, the grandfather, or at right, least a okay. super bad influence. So um, according to mobster Meyer Lansky himself, Rothstein had the most remarkable brain and he understood Mm -hmm. business instinctively. I'm sure if he had been a legitimate financier, he would have been just as rich as he became with his gambling and other rackets he ran.
1: Yeah, I I get that. He has an acumen that can be, um, that has crossover skills. So he could have translated that into other, areas of business or life and, and been just as successful, but that's not what drives him. The financial world is not what drives him. His main love is gambling and that's a dangerous thing Um, in general. So yeah, that's, that's really, really interesting. Wow. Well, in
0: 1919, he cemented his name into history because he may or may not have fixed the world series. Right. Uh, what is a great, <laughs> yeah, there's a great deal of evidence both for and against his involvement in the plot to fix the series. But the the generally accepted story is that he had some of his guys, uh, members of the early mob, pay off some of the Chicago White Sox to throw that's a few of the games and lose the series to the Cincinnati Reds.
1: That's right. Yeah. And that's the um, say it ain't so thing. Is that the right?
0: Black, the Black Sox scandal.
1: Yeah. Yeah, big. The first major Ross- scandal in baseball, I think, really, right?
0: Yes. Mm. Yep. It was the it was the big one. And he actually bet on it, and the White Sox did lose, and he mm. took a huge payday of around three hundred and fifty thousand dollars
1: Holy shit. I I'm right. C- carry on talking. I am gonna find <laughs> out how much that is. Um uh, US inflation. Rate. So
0: um he takes this big old. Payday of three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which I should have probably looked up how much it is today.
1: So thank out. you for taking care of that for me. The problem. So, sorry, the what what year was that? Just just nineteen
0: nineteen.
1: Nineteen nineteen. Right. Okay. Uh, to then twenty twenty three, and we're going to go with three hundred and fifty thousand. You said, yeah. Yes, sir. Right. Let's see. That is oh six point one million in Ooh. today's money <laughs> in one bet. So holy shit yeah he's a baller
0: yeah the, the problem was the players appeared to be playing so pe- uh poorly that it looked pretty obvious that they were trying right. to lose sure. and when the pressure mounted there was players on the team that confessed by 1920 mm. uh shoeless joe jackson never yep. you know you, you remember him
1: from uh what was it field of dreams field of dreams yeah, yeah they uh there's a big like part of that which is about like redeeming his legacy yep. i think yeah
0: Yeah, and in total, eight players admitted to taking bribes. Uh, That was known as the Black Sox scandal, and Mm. none of them played a game of professional baseball ever again.
1: Yeah, and I I understand they probably would have earned a lot of money for throwing the game, but you've got to question whether or not it was worth it for A, the destruction of their legacy, and B, the long-term loss of any earning power they would have had. Because people did not look on corruption in modern-day sports back then as they do now, you know, now it seems to be somewhat prevalent. And yes, people still get bans and fines and all of that. But back then it was like you were gone from mainstream society.
0: Yeah, so. it's it seemed
1: like it was a lot more strict back then. Mm,
0: mm. Um, anyway, Arnold got, got off scot-free. He was never actually able <laughs> to have anything stick on him. He wow. kept his hands super clean and totally denied that he was involved at all. Jeez. No charges. Incredible. They couldn't do a thing. <laughs> no
1: and again this is another staple of early 20th century crime it's very difficult to get people on stuff unless you unless it's like a police officer actually witnessing the crime it's so hard to get people and even then the police are stitching up the wrong person so it's oh, like yeah. it's really difficult
0: usually somebody that uh, somebody paid to have them snatch yeah, up exactly. instead Patties, anyway yeah By 1920, the United States ratified the 18th Amendment and the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcohol became illegal. Here we go. Arnold saw that as a prime business opportunity to branch out into bootlegging and narcotics. So he did. Uh, He became one of the first to get his hands into the illegal alcohol trafficking business and imported Mm -hmm. uh, booze down the Hudson River from Canada and through the Great Lakes. He also started purchasing up uh speakeasies or shares in them. Right. And he later became the first to illegally import scotch whiskey from his own fleet of transatlantic freighters mm. because he knew that high-end booze was going to be a niche market. It's going to be a chic thing to have. Oh yeah.
1: And I think you'd call this vertical inter- integration today. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And there's a really interesting um element to this from the British side of things, because obviously, um, you know, the whole prohibition and, and dry counties and all of that is a really interesting part of American history. There's also a part where a lot of smugglers used Caribbean islands and places around there to smuggle stuff into the mainland United States. And the Coast Guard were well aware of this. And they got in touch with the person um, who was kind of involved with administering the Caribbean islands at the time. And controlling that, and that person was Winston Churchill. And they said, "Can you help us, maybe? Because you know these people have got really powerful onboard motors, and they're faster than our Coast Guard ships, and they're just getting away from us." And he was like, "Your own fucking stupid mistake for outlawing <laughs> alcohol," <laughs> and he refused. And actually, he encouraged um, some of the local, um, like kind of mechanics and stuff, to sell engines so that like more booze could get into America. He Dude, did not give a shit. It's it's strange the
0: like power sports influence that making alcohol illegal had on yeah. American culture with racing boats, NASCAR. All of that came from bootlegging and running alcohol.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So many I I, I wanna because we're onto prohibition now. If anyone's listening to this and they want to watch a really like just the definitive Run of what prohibition was like in American history. There is a docu series by um, Ken. What's his name? Ken Burns. Ken Burns. Prohibition. Yeah, it is one. one of the best documentaries I have ever seen. The whole thing. They talk about random events and also the bigger picture. You know, you hear about um, like the the woman who was going around breaking glass. Uh, oh. In in the dens and stuff, I can't remember. Carry Nation, Carry Nation okay. cut glass. So she was breaking up. She was like just going in. This old woman smashing the place up and destroying these illegal bars. And then you've got stories about uh, boot uh, bootleg booze runners and like th- they interview the son of one who would work with his dad on on booze and stuff, and he, they would get word in advance from local police about a raid that was going to be done on their place. So his dad was like, right, quickly, load everything up into the back of a, this hearse. They had a hearse. Ooh. They drove the hearse into Arlington Cemetery and just sat there, and they are like, no one's going to check a hearse yeah. in Arlington Cemetery.
0: Wow. That's wow. so dark. <laughs> That's, I think that is a solid plan. I never would have thought of that. Plan. Yeah, exactly. So good bad though
1: <laughs> it's it's so as as ways of getting around prohibition go that's probably like you're basically saying nobody's going to interfere with the burial of a, of a soldier right so we fill this fucking thing up with all of the booze we have and then just sit there until the, the heat dies down and I think it was the same guy who was like and then we drive the 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 truck around to all these different various government buildings and they buy the booze off us I'm like oh,
0: oh wow <laughs> and that's yeah. in the Ken Burns documentary
1: that's in the Ken Burns documentary yeah I remember them talking about specifically about people knowing that prohibition was coming up and hoarding masses of alcohol like buying up tons and tons and tons because it was illegal to buy it but not to own it so they basically filled up their entire cellars from floor to ceiling with, with booze but also like it, yeah and like government buildings it was like one of the main sources of illegal booze at the time so yeah It's really interesting. If you watch Ken Burns' Prohibition documentary, it used to be on Netflix. I'm not sure it is anymore. Um, Check it out. It's just, it's so good. It's probably on PBS because that's where it was originally broadcast. He does a lot of them. He, He did the, what is it, US and the Holocaust too? Yeah, he did the Holocaust, did the Vietnam War. He did a really good one on the Civil War. Really great documentary on the Civil War. He also did one on baseball, which I haven't seen yet. And I really want to watch. I think that's the only Ken Burns one I haven't seen. So. I gotta
0: get through servant, and then I'll start watching documentaries again.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, sorry. Just tangent over. Please continue.
0: Well, in 1921, after the Black Sox scandal and his vertical integration into bootlegging drugs and narcotics, he goes back yeah. to horse racing under nice. the pseudonym Redstone Stable. He acquires a racehorse named Sporting Blood. Okay. That horse won the 1921 tra- uh, Travers Stake under sus- suspicious. Ooh, why is that such a hard word? Suspicious circumstances. (laughs) And the story is that Arnold allegedly conspired with the leading trainer to drive up the odds on Sporting Blood. So this trainer, Hildreth, enters an outstanding three-year-old gray lag on the morning of the race, causing the odds to go up for Sporting Blood to three to one. Right. Rothstein bets $150,000 through his bookmakers. And Purdy... Oh, wait, the second favorite Purdy is off her feed. And just before post time, Hildress scratches Grey Lag from the starting list and Rothstein collects over 500,000 plus the purse from owning the horse.
1: Oh, my God. So that's close to a million dollars at that point, right? That is... Insane, <laughs> and it's life. like a
0: gajillion dollars in today's money. Oh
1: God, yeah, we're we'll, we're not even gonna do the calculations on that. That's like pushing like how much did we say it was, it was like, like six. six six million for three hundred and fifty thousand. So we're, we're we're approaching ten million dollars. Dude, that. he's That's, just killing it. He absolutely is. And like at certain point, why are you still doing this? Why don't you just stop? You have because enough money he's... to buy an island. Because when he's gambling, nothing else matters.
0: Uh, Of course.
1: Yes, it's the rush. Okay.
0: So by 1926, he branches out further and becomes the financial overlord of the American narcotics trade. And now with even more money and ever-growing power, Mm. he's kind of running things. He's actually mediating disputes between the different New York and Chicago gangs and charging them a hefty fee for his services.
1: I'm not surprised.
0: Also around that same time, he starts purchasing it and importing heroin from Europe and selling it through his underworld connections for like huge profits. He's like the first sure. person to, to figure out how to do this, I guess. Wow. Uh, he becomes the first modern drug dealer in the US, like way before El Chapo and Pablo Escobar. Wow, yeah. Definitely. And they were way more profitable than booze and bootlegging, so he kind mm. of settled in as the kingpin. But gambling, couldn't get away from it he continued his organized crime um connections with lucky luciano meyer lansky other dangerous folks like dutch schultz uh, jack legs diamond or gentleman jack yeah you may know him frank yep. costello these oh are all God. his friends these are all the people that he's hanging out with
1: these are not the people you want as friends
0: holy shit lucky luciano actually kind of worshipped him and oh, really he's quoted as saying he taught me how to dress how to use knives and forks and things like that at the dinner table About holding the door open for a girl and i think if arnold had lived a little longer he could have made me pretty elegant and that's lucky luciano the father of modern
1: organized crime that's really interesting because what you're essentially doing is you're infusing thugs and gangsters and criminals and like horrible mer- mass murderers with the, the behaviors and trappings of high-class society so they can fit in more mm-hmm. become more accepted as part of uh the elite and it's even harder to trap them then because if they're ingratiated with powerful famous elegant people then they're going to be seen as part of the scene and that's that's even harder to break at that point you're part oh, yeah. of the establishment it's very hard to get out
0: Oh, yeah, if you become one of them, yeah, you can do bad things and only get slaps on the wrist pretty much yeah until I mean, they I, kick I, you
1: out and rage your mar go home. yeah, I was gonna was gonna say I mean it's I, I would argue my point about like conspiracy theories and how they give people too much credit, but time and time again, we're seeing people in various institutions get away with significantly horrific things and just get barely a slap on the wrist. Yeah. So yeah. Um please continue. This this is really interesting now. Really well, he is. never
0: actually got into trouble because he didn't live all that much longer. Oh shit. As well. is the case for most American mobsters. His rise was rapid, his life was short, and his death mm. was violent. Wow. Okay. The beginning of the end happened in October 1928, where he joined a poker game that lasted for four days.
1: Holy shit. Yeah. I mean it what <laughs> how I mean, I know they're important drugs, so they might be doing Amphet or or Speed or something, or cocaine, but four days? Poker what games a... can go on
0: a while. What about if you need a poo? Well,
1: or, you... You know, well there's you intermissions.
0: Oh, great. You pull okay. your stuff out. It's like... like
1: nine hours so you can go and have a shower and a sleep. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe oh, they man. did.
0: That was... God, you'd be tired after four days of playing poker.
1: Yeah, man. Your brain would be fried.
0: Well. In a fun little twist, though, Arnold, the master of fixing games, found himself in a game that appeared to be fixed by somebody that wasn't him.
1: Oh, no way. That's amazing.
0: Allegedly, the game was rigged by a pair of gambler mobsters, the uh, Titanic Thompson and Nate Raymond, who ended up with Arnold owing them somewhere in the ballpark of $300,000.
1: I mean, that's chump change at this point, right? He's earning that for, like, brokering deals, surely. Yeah,
0: yeah. I was trying to, yeah. (laughs) He uh, Knew it was fixed though So he refused to pay It wasn't about the money It's about like I invented the call you
1: just used
0: (laughs) Yeah (laughs) Don't you you me (laughs) Um, Wow So he refuses to pay up And on uh, November 4th 1928 He's headed to Manhattan Park Central Hotel Mm. And according to some stories It's for a business meeting Other stories say it's for a poker game. Mm -hmm. And then others still say that it was in response to this mysterious phone call asking him to come to the hotel for some reason or another. All right. I'm going to go with the one that was told by Encyclopedia Britannica and Biography.com because they seemed the most creditable. So he arrives at the hotel, joins in this other high stakes poker game. And he just really didn't realize how high stakes it was going to be. I guess (laughs) Uh, Mm. uh, I like puns (laughs) (laughs) after about an hour of joining the game. He staggers out the service entrance of the hotel where he's discovered bleeding from Mm. a 38 caliber gunshot wound. Ooh! Police followed his trail of blood back to the poker game. That was still in progress.
1: Oh, for fuck's sake, guys, (laughs) come on.
0: (laughs) And in keeping with mobster code, he never named the person that shot him and no one was ever convicted of his murder. On November 6 1928, he succ- succumbed to his wounds in uh, New York Polyclinic Hospital. <sighs> but, you know, like I said, his story lived on. His likeness was carried into entertainment, both as the character Nathan Detroit in the musical Guys and Dolls mm-hmm. and as Meyer Wolfsheim in the novel The Great Gatsby. Those are oh, both wow. modeled on him.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: And like I said, he appeared in Boardwalk Empire, played by Michael Stalberg. but
1: uh, Sorry, yeah. what was what was the first name that he was given in in popular culture? It sounded Nathan... like Jackie Daytona, which is from <laughs> what we do in the shadows. But sorry, what was it?
0: Nathan Detroit from Guys and Dolls.
1: Right. Uh, okay. That yeah, there you go. That makes was,
0: sense. Was was that other guy? Uh, kind of like a satire spin on the spoof
1: on that. Uh, no, it's just Matt Berry. It was co- Matt Berry's character. Sorry. Uh, is it Laszlo is confronted by Mark Hamill, vampire Mark Hamill. And uh, <laughs> he just uh, like, he fucks off and assumes a different identity. And it's Jackie Daytona. And he's got like, the only thing that's changed about him is he's put a toothpick in his mouth. and He's, <laughs> he's a bartender now. And then Mark well, Hamill. A bartender. But he doesn't even change his action, it, accent. It's still the ridiculous Matt Berry voice that he does <laughs> in everything. So he's like a bartender in this, like, random thing. And then Mark Hamill's character randomly walks into the bar, and he's like, oh, shit, the gig's up. But Mark Hamill doesn't recognize him <laughs> because he's got a toothpick in his mouth, and his name's Jackie Daytona. <laughs> uh, so it's honestly, I can't recommend... What we do in the shadows, the TV show, enough it is so fucking funny. It might be the funniest thing I've seen in about 10 years. So I'm gonna have to get on that one too, man. So I gotta good. get a list here. Are you taking notes? Yeah, it's it, honestly, <laughs> it's because it's written by Jermaine Clement of the Flight of Flight of the Concords and um also Taika Waititi. Um, it's just yeah he because he, they did the original film uh, what we do in the shadows which was like an independent thing and helped launch Tyker's career um it's just it's such a good series and matt berry's character in particular who is like a flamboyant even more ridiculous version of what matt berry is like in real life <laughs> um he has a specific way of talking and he mispronounces words new york city and stuff like that <laughs> it was one bit where um then their um familiar is chasing someone around the house and um who's called gilielmo but they're refusing to call him that they call him Gizmo so he Gizmo. just goes yeah he's chasing someone around the house and he goes Gizmo shut the fuck up i'm doing a piece to camera and it's just like, it's like it's so fucking brilliant so sorry yeah um what we you, do in the shadows the head, Jackie okay. Data. what we do in the shadows uh, it's it's so good so um wow yeah this guy had a massive influence he
0: did he touched all, well, that's a bad way to put that. He touched all <laughs> kinds of gangsters. Um, yeah, I mean, all the gambling he, he molded them. To my Draft Kings, though. <laughs> Play some bets on the baseball games.
1: Yeah, basically you need to find someone like him <laughs> where <laughs> everything seems to go his way and just like somehow find out what he's going to be betting on and just do that straight yeah. away because you know oh, yeah. he's going to be right. Um, yeah, he is kind of the mold from which most modern gangsters have been formed from. He's this well-mannered, gentlemanly, well-dressed, but completely cutthroat and vicious um, yeah. uh, organizer, and that's been the the prototype of every organized crime lord since this oh, guy. Yeah. I never knew that it was a. I because you always you think of it as a cliche now, right? We've seen all the Scorsese films, we've seen all the TV shows, Sopranos, and they're all very much of that type even going back to the godfather and stuff like that and um yeah i guess the exception will be scarface which is just you know just like a a psychopath basically um, uh as a crime lord but um yeah i it's really interesting to find like patient zero of the crime lord dynasty essentially you know that yeah it was like a perfect storm of
0: Prohibition and yep. Business Meets Crime all at the same time. And mm-hmm. honestly, this dude's got some of the coolest nicknames, though. He's Mr. Big, The okay. Fixer, The mm-hmm.
1: Big Bankroll, and The Brain. That's, yeah, it's kind of... And I'd imagine he was one of the first people to be called those names as well. That's that's really, really interesting. And actually, so he died in 1928, you say?
0: Yes, on uh, November 6th,
1: 1928. That's really yeah. interesting, because the next year... Well, actually a few months later, we're talking about the major stock market crash. Um, which I wonder what he would have done during the depression. That would have been a really interesting time because this guy never seemed to care about it. It didn't seem that philanthropic, which you find with like like El Chapo was very philanthropic and gave millions upon millions of dollars away to these poor communities, partially so that he could hide in there safely from anyone. Finding him and stuff. The and Robin Hood loyal. method. The Robin Hood method, exactly. And you don't seem to get that with this guy. It seems to be about him fulfilling his own gambling needs and being powerful. So yeah, he just
0: keeps his hand hands clean and stays mm.
1: tight with some really f- vicious really people. Yeah,
0: like, same time as Al Capone was coming out, he was mm. dealing with Lucky Luciano. They had a that's little right. battle at the mm. time. So
1: that's that is really really interesting and. Again, I, I, this is and this is going to be something that will follow through to my story as well. Oh, um what? <laughs> really? Well, in a way, the 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 thing is, this guy could have stopped at any time and retired and disappeared and lived out his days. Yes. At this point, yeah. he has enough money to essentially buy an island and be like, <laughs> try and do what um, Mc- McAfee did and basically become the ruler of an island. <laughs> um, yeah, but. Uh, um, he didn't do it because he couldn't recognize that he had a problem and that was what was driving. And it was ultimately what was going to take him to his early grave because I think what we're looking at here is quite crippling gambling addiction, but someone who was also smart enough to fix the outcomes of these events. So it's, it's not really gambling anymore at that point. So, yeah, Um, well, I mean, it's gambling if you're playing with other people that are fixing it. Well, yeah, exactly. So, it's a really interesting story of someone who should have stopped but couldn't and that problem led to their downfall and this man had he gone the route and this is a really interesting question they, they talked about if he'd gone into finance he'd have done really really well as well given that this guy was probably the most powerful like gambling hustler slash gangster in America at the time or one of like maybe five or ten. Imagine if he'd gone into finance and he hadn't got involved in gambling and he'd stayed around in the 1920s. Would we have had the depression and the uh, the stock market crash of 1929 had this guy been heavily involved in the higher levels of finance? Depends on who he actually made friends with. If he never gambled. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Cause he it could, could have been any worse friends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's really, really, really interesting story. Thanks for covering that Derek. I, I do like stories like that. Um, had a fun time with it for sure yeah i can can tell actually and this is going to be a difficult one to score because he's definitely an idiot um but it's it's one of those ones where he was so successful and so significantly influential as well um but not so much so that he couldn't see problems coming and he was by the sounds of it taking more and more risks With like who he was gambling with and how he was doing it, and yeah, so I would say he's probably an eighty-three. Ooh, okay, I'll take that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because this is someone, and again, it's it's wasted potential. This is someone who could have been a huge figure in United States politics, finance, or you know, carried on with his organized crime ship. He could have carried on doing that for years and years, decades. Could have been a Rockefeller he could have been a Rockefeller. He could have been the underworld's Rockefeller, but he didn't because he didn't see the problems coming. And that's, that that's his big weakness. And really at this point in time, if anyone did want to take him down, they're like, he's a degenerate gambler. Let's get him that way. And it wouldn't have been hard, would it? So, you know, um, and that's the problem Mm -hmm. is if you are really powerful and really good at what you do, and you are really, really influential, but you have a really glaring weakness. You're basically fucked because no matter know. how you know many friends you have, how powerful you are, if your one weakness is easy to exploit, you're doomed. So that's true.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing with gambling addiction. Well, you just don't yeah. know when to stop exactly
1: just wide open. It's, <laughs> it's interesting, you know, we, we, because we've talked about addiction in the past and how it can shape certain people's lives and stuff. I remember, um, when i was in university the second time um my my best friend had worked in a casino um and he was like we should go to this one in wolverhampton so we went to a casino because they had free food and drink after oh, yeah. a certain point in the night it was like 10 o'clock and they bring out the food and we were like oh great uh, we'd stick around for that and we go in and we bet on the uh, we go in with 40 pounds and we would bet on the roulette wheels and we do the rows. Cause you've got oh, nice. three rows and a zero. So we put five pounds down on one row, five pounds down on a second row. That way you've got kind of a 66% chance of winning unless it lands on zero. And, you know, we'd either make out of there with like 60, 70 pounds instead of 40, or we'd like break even. We'd stop gambling when we hit the 40 pound mark. And then we would just wait for the food and drink to arrive. And we have that for free. And then we'd leave. Cause we got a free meal basically because we were poor yeah. students.
0: Outside of the, the free drink and meal, um, my senior year of high school, because gambling was legal in Arizona for eighteen year olds. Oh wow. That's kind of that. how after I got in my accident and stopped delivering auto parts, I started going mm-hmm. out to the Fort McDowell casino with my buddy Tim mm-hmm. and doing mm-hmm. the same thing. But I, amazing, I split isn't it? the zero double zero with two two bucks.
1: Ah, oh, that's smart. That's really yeah, smart. That's I should have done one. that. But it was it was a nice way of like okay, you know, we've come out of this with like 20, 30 pounds. That's like, that's all our food for this week, you know, or like that's, you know, maybe we can have a meal out or something like that. But we would see people go in there and like lose 2,000 pounds in a night and then the next night win 5,000 and then the next night lose 4,000. And it's just like, what on earth? They are completely out of control. Casinos are amazing. And like mm. when my
0: son, when my wife was pregnant with my son back in like a four or five, I was mm. working as a valet at Casino, Arizona. Right. And I would see those people, you yeah. know, my my VIPs, my people that tip me a hundred bucks <sighs> would come in and lose just so much money and then win so much money and they'd mm. take care of you. And none of them actually ever really seemed like really wealthy people. The ones mm. that were gambling that way, they of were course. they were just scraping by, it seemed like.
1: Yeah. And I, I guess that's the the same thing is the, you know, people who have a lot of money and who've got there through graft and hard work typically don't like to gamble their money. Typically, yeah. they'll they'll leverage it some way like there'll be something else that can take the fall. Maybe it's a different corporation or government funding or whatever it is, but they are always going to be fine. Their money will always be fine. It's everyone else's money that you need to be worried about. So, so yeah, that's that's a really interesting one. So I'm happy to give um, the prototype of gangster lifestyle and gambling an 83 because, you know, you think about the legacy he left behind. He set the mold for some incredibly dangerous and horrible people over the years to oh, be yeah. successful and not viewed as thugs, which they were. So Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's um, the
0: original, like sit-downs between the Mm. gangs and stuff was the four four, five families whatever
1: yeah yeah the five families in new york and chicago and kansas city and that lot yeah wow um really interesting time in american history so thanks for doing that and also once again if anybody's listening to this and they want to find out more about the prohibition era uh the ken burns documentary prohibition is an excellent source it's like 20 hours or something over, oh, like maybe 9-10 episodes, something like that. It's great. So I would really, really highly recommend that. So from your idiots who just didn't know when to stop to my idiots who could have stopped but were involved in the most violent armed robbery in American history. Oh. So I'd Gosh. like to talk to you Yeah, I'd like to talk to you right now about the North Hollywood shootout of the late 1990s. Oh, wow. You know the one I'm talking about. These fuckers. So (laughs) um, some of you may not know what this is about. You may have seen the news footage because this entire thing is available to view on the internet, on YouTube. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it because it's quite violent, even though it's shot from a distance. But it is incredible footage. Oh, um, it's
0: mimicked in so many movies too. It and is. They actually train for it at Quantico for the FBI on how to deal with it.
1: Yeah, it's this this s- sparked militarization of US police. Absolutely. <laughs> and we'll we'll talk about that. About how if it weren't for this armed robbery, police would not be carrying semi-automatic weapons. They would there wouldn't be films that are made in a specific way, like The Town with Ben Affleck and Jeremy Renner, kind of basically this whole thing. And mm-hmm. also um, basically the entire like there's a number of threads in the Grand Theft Auto series that owe <laughs> everything to this moment in time. Oh yeah. So those games would not be as successful without this moment. And also, um, just a quick thing. I also need to thank my my buddy Wendigoon, for the inspiration behind this video. He produced uh produced a great video on YouTube. He he always does great videos on YouTube um about this incident which i recommend you go and watch he's very entertaining and just a really lovely guy as well he's getting married soon so congratulations wendy Congrats. Um, yeah also uh warning as well this contains descriptions of quite intense violence so if that ain't your bag um go and listen to our last podcast we talk about, like, George Lazenby banging his way through his one and only James Bond film. So <laughs> just go and listen to that instead. But let's get to this one now. So Larry Eugene Phillips, Jr., born the uh, 20th of September, 1970. And oh, this is going to be difficult. Decibel Stefan, Emilian Emil. And I'll be using that name from now on instead of his surname. <laughs> Matasaranu. Wow. Yeah. And what all is of the A's name? have got that like circumflex above them. So it, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So it's Ma Um He is so he's from um, he's descended from Romanian. Uh, he's okay. he's a Romanian uh, kind of exile type thing, not exile, you know, expat, um, who was born on the nineteenth of July, nineteen sixty-six first met at gold's gym in venice beach california in 1989 <laughs> uh phillips who was six foot four and weighed 193 pounds and emile who was six foot two and weighed 330 pounds big motherfucker right there holy moly yeah. they had a mutual interests in uh weightlifting bodybuilding firearms flower pressing, and stamp collecting. I made those last two up. Okay. (laughs) 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 The the real ones were weightlifting, bodybuilding, and firearms, which sounds like Pain and Gain, Uh, that terrible film that What's-His-Name made as a passion project. Uh, But yeah, that's kind of three things that I don't think necessarily go well, because if you have an interest in bodybuilding, there's certain activity that goes involved in that performance enhancing and specific uh, chemicals in that range probably not a great combination with firearms may uh, or may not make you rage may or may not make you rage for a period of time and if you happen to have an ar-15 in your hands that ain't gonna end well um before their meeting Phillips was a an habitual offender, responsible for multiple real estate scams and counts of shoplifting. Emil, on the other hand, was born in Timișoara, uh, timisauro, timisauro? I, I don't know. I have a Romanian Hi. colleague. I should have asked her um, <laughs> in Romania. To parents who relocated to Los Angeles in 1974 and was a qualified electrical engineer. And ran a relatively unsuccessful computer repair business. So he's a legit guy, whereas the other guy's like a career criminal. Okay. Um, however, on this, their friends, they get into oh, pardon me, bodybuilding and working out at the gym, and share their love of firearms, shoot, and guns. also yeah, shooting guns, having fun, taking steroids potentially because uh, n- nobody gets to three hundred and thirty pounds naturally at six foot two like that's. Unless yeah. you're like a Samoan dude or something, they're pretty big, but well, he wasn't, was he, was, was he? No, he was he... he's I Romanian, so okay. so he was, he's, he was pretty jacked. I mean, it was, it was like that, um roid belly thing where you have have a six-pack but it also protrudes a little bit so kind of like the strong strongest man in the world competition
0: guys like power lifter guy
1: basically yeah the kind of the low center of gravity bulky frame um i guess we call it stocky in the uk uh dr j here how do you press flowers when you can't put your arms down fully (laughs) exactly (laughs) that's why i was joking you can't get it beyond like that point because the the muscles below your armpit can't let you do that. You can press them down and they will just spring right back up again. Like you're fucking actually he presses them in his pit, Yeah. Maybe that's what he does. Crushes them that way. They smell terrible. Um, so, um, so he, him and his parents relocated to America in 1974. Um, but we should also mention it in the 1980s and nineties. It was the kind of the second golden age of armed robbery in the United States, because obviously, the 1930s it was a big thing you know a lot of people robbing banks with yeah. tommy guns and and you know getting away in a car and there being a shootout but in the 80s and 90s it was a really really big problem there was a big uh, epidemic of actual um armed robbers basically finding homeless people and drug addicts giving them a small gun sending them into a bank with a note that they'd written and then um when they'd walk out with like thousand dollars two thousand dollars splitting the money with them and those guys would go away and blow it on drugs and they'd keep the their share of the oh, money wow. so that was a big problem but occasionally someone would make off with like tens of thousands of dollars because they would actually plan the actual robbery and it was at such a point that there was something like thirty thousand robberies a year in the 90s Ooh. lots and lots of robberies a lot of them over on the west coast uh, for some reason, uh, I don't know whether it's proliferation of guns or poverty or what, but who knows,
0: huh? I, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to remember because I'm out here on the west coast and mm. I was here in the 90s, I think. Mm. I don't know. Apparently, I should, the, the bank by my house got robbed like twice, and that was in 2000 go. though.
1: Yeah, when <laughs> we get you know, we get robberies in this country as well, but they never do banks i mean unless it's like hatton garden which was a big thing about 10 years ago the hatton garden job in london most of the places that get robbed in this country are like low-level convenience stores and stuff like that and then and they never involve that there's rarely ever firearms involved it's usually like a bat or a knife or something like that because we don't generally have guns in this country
0: or like terry In uh, one of our yes. last seasons, he taped up a brush
1: and made it look taped like Taped up a something. brush and pretended it was gun. Didn't work. <laughs> um, so, um, these two uh, get involved with guns and bodybuilding and armed robbery robberies thing, and they're like, hey, why don't we give that a go? We're big, we've got guns. On the 20th of July, 1993, Phillips and Emil Robbed an armored car outside a branch of First Bank in Littleton, Colorado. On October the 29th, they were arrested in Glendale, California, northeast of Los Angeles, for operating a stolen vehicle, which that's a big red flag right there. You know, yeah. Got two guys in a stolen vehicle. They might be planning to use it for something. Um, possibly.
0: Yeah. Possibly. Did they look into
1: it further? And they did. A subsequent (laughs) search of the vehicle, uh, after Phillips surrendered uh, with a concealed weapon, found two semi-automatic rifles, two handguns, more than 1,600 rounds of 7.62 by 39 millimeter rifle ammunition, 1,200 rounds of 9 by 19 millimeter parabellum and .45 ACP handgun ammunition, radio scanners, smoke bombs. Improvised explosive devices, body armor vests, and three different Californian license plates.
0: Oh my god! Good, they stopped the robbery.
1: Slightly did, suspicious.
0: Did we go through the time warp here? They, still, nope. they went back in time and stopped it here.
1: No. Oh, <laughs> let's talk about how the the courts and the criminal justice system handled this. That, I and they're armed to the fucking teeth, dude. And yeah. they've got. Explosive, smoke bombs, armoured, like, bulletproof vests, different license plates. Send them to jail for a long time, right? Yeah, they're up to something, I think. They're really up to something. Didn't happen. Initially charged <laughs> with conspiracy to commit armed robbery. Of course, that's what they were doing. Both served 100 days in jail. Not 100 days. Three and a bit months. <laughs> <laughs> and I, get I guarantee... Being. Uh, yeah you get that for like public urination or like i don't know (laughs) drunken behavior and spitting at a police officer or something like that you can get a long time for that but a hundred days i what's this here uh dr j has got a thing I grew up in LA and was a youth in the 1990s. Huge number of bank branches opened as suburbs spread and retail banking exploded. Also, lots of guns coming out of the major boom in drug trade, gangs, both domestically and internationally. Yeah, it's kind of a bit of a weird time. Yeah, and then the war uh, on ironically, drugs. yeah, the war on drugs, but also interestingly, uh, the crime rate in the 90s at a certain point took a massive d- uh, decline. And at the time, people didn't understand what it was. And then years later, they figured out that, yes, it was getting tougher on crime. That was part of it. Yes, they got rid of some of the crack in the streets. Yes, that was part of it. But the majority of the reason why there was a massive drop off in crime was because Roe v. Wade had come into effect 18 years earlier and a whole generation of criminals that would have been raised in single parent families weren't there to commit crime.
0: Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. Well, so get to deal with that again.
1: 18 years time you wait massive surge in crime um so anyway uh back to this so they've been sentenced to three and a bit months in uh jail partially um and also three years probation due to a plea bargain i can't imagine a plea bargain that would get you such a little time in jail as that when you are that armed maybe they gave up their their firearms guy i don't know
0: yeah, I feel like if you've got that much firepower with you and yeah. explosives and dangerous shit, and you're in a stolen car, it should kind of stack up to where, what did they do? Like, speeding ticket? Is that what I it know. was? No, <laughs> Basically,
1: yeah. And like, I can't understand, because this is the 90s. This is when people are getting really long sentences for this shit. It's because so, they didn't have any crack on them. Yeah, that's it. If they'd had a weed, if they'd yeah. had like like a pound of weed, they'd have been looking at 25 to life or something. Yeah, that.
0: mandatory minimums and whatnot. Yeah, science.
1: yeah. <laughs> After their release, uh, most of their seized property was returned to them, except for the confiscated firearms and explosives. So they still oh. got to keep the license plates, the scanners, the body armor. That's fucking crazy to me. Did they
0: get to keep the stolen car? I don't. I think that was probably seized okay. as well. So they didn't get the
1: guns or the car or the explosives. Everything else. But oh, everything else, every everything will save you a bit of money. All right. Here you go. Keep this. Um, on June 14th, 1995, Phillips and Emil um, ambushed uh, a Brinks armored car in Winteca, Los Angeles, killed one guard, Herman Cook, and seriously wounded another. Again, this could have been uh, avoided if they hadn't actually, if they'd been given a proper serious criminal sentence. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In May 1996, they robbed two branches of Bank of America in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, stealing approximately $1.5 million. The pair were dubbed the high incident bandits by investigators due to the weaponry they had used in three robberies prior to their attempt in North Hollywood. So after stealing $1.5 million in the mid-90s, so $750,000 each, let you know it's not quite as long ago you're probably doubling that i'd say 1.5 million each again um just retire right isn't yeah, that I the point like of this the right investment and they would yeah. have been okay <laughs> exactly buy yourself a small house start a small business be careful keep your overheads low you can retire super young these guys are in their 30s they're not old and get out. You've made out with a lot of money and two robberies, but you've already like gotten away with it once. Stop. But they couldn't, I think because they kind of loved getting shitloads of money. I think they got very excited about it. And we'll talk about how they got around it as well, because the planning that went into this next one is crazy. On the morning of February the 28th, 1997, after months of preparation that included extensive reconnoitering of their intended targets reconnaissance i guess uh, the bank of america branch located at 66 uh sorry 6600 6, 6, 0, 0, laurel canyon boulevard uh, larry and Emil armed themselves with a semi automatic hk91 and several illegally converted weapons two norinco type 5 uh, 56s rifles a fully automatic norinco type 56s1 and a fully automatic bushmaster xm15 dissipator
0: See, uh, this is this is back before ar's were everywhere
1: i know yeah you're gonna you're gonna have to tell me if that's overkill because i i don't know anything about that but uh yeah oh sorry this, this is really close to my neighborhood where i grew up although by this time i'd moved to the east coast you probably got out at the right time because it's about to kick off oh yeah um, yeah the Trying robbers
0: this gun, because I haven't... Yeah, the Norinco
1: Norinco type Uh, 56S rifle, and then the S1. It's like
0: an AK-47 type.
1: Right. Okay, well, that's probably a good choice, because it won't jam. And then the fully automatic Bushmaster XM-15 Dissipator. which I mean, that sounds fucking terrifying right there. I
0: think that's some sort of AR-15. Right, yeah.
1: So they've got three, well, four semi-automatic, because they've got an HK... 91 so they got four semi-automatic weapons we've not even got into the handguns because they did have handguns but we'll talk about that a little bit later on uh the robbers allegedly filled a jam jar with gasoline and placed it in the back seat of the vehicle with the intention of setting the car and the weapons on fire to destroy evidence after the robbery not sure that would do the trick that was in the town was it oh yeah wow Yes, it was. You're right. They did that. Holy shit! Um, <laughs> yeah, Ben Affleck stealing from real life. Uh, Phillips wore roughly uh, 40 pounds, 18 kilograms of equipment, including a Type um, 3A bulletproof vest and groin guard, a load uh, a load bearing vest with military type ammo pouches, and several pieces of homemade body armor created from spare vests covering his shins thighs and forearms he's a fucking knight in armor at this point Um, dude i can't imagine bulletproof shin guards would really do uh, much you're still gonna break your leg basically yeah it's still gonna shatter your your leg if if you get hit with the right round and also um thighs and forearms I, i i get it but not really gonna hit that i just want him to be wearing like a darling cravat A little floral design just to offset the design of this whole outfit. Emil, on the other hand, went a little bit more basic. He wore a Type 3A bulletproof vest, which included a metal ballistic plate to protect vital organs. Uh, Fucking Tony Stark over here. Additionally, each man had had a watch sewn onto the back of one of their gloves in order to monitor their timing. Serious preparation went into this robbery.
0: Yeah, that's like that's high skill level mm. type. Yeah, that's military execution type
1: crap. Exactly, and the reason they did all this is this bank had allegedly in the one safe had seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in it. So it's again, it's another massive score for them. Um, before entering, they took the barbituate um, phenobarbital prescribed to Emil as a sedative to calm their nerves so that they could have steady fingers, and that's even more preparation.
0: Yeah, that's what snipers do.
1: Exactly. Uh, The forensic toxicology laboratory of the coroner's office, so kind of giving away the ending here, later also found ephedrine and phenopropanolamine in Phillips's blood, and fentanyl in Emile's blood. So they are off their fucking heads.
0: Oh yeah, good stuff. Look at them go
1: team man, like, Party totally time. open the vault and give me the money, man. Uh, <laughs> they're fucking, they're so calm. Uh Phillips and Emil driving a white 1987 Chevrolet Celebrity arrived at the Bank of America <laughs> branch at the intersection of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and Archwood Street in North Hollywood around 9.16 a.m and set their watch alarms for eight minutes. The police response time they had estimated based on their feedback and results and research and stuff like that. 9.16 in the morning. I get that people aren't quite alert yet and stuff, but this is like morning rush hour time. Would you really be doing it then? I mean, 9.16,
0: you'd figure everybody would be going into the office there's not anybody mm. gonna be coming with their deposits yet really a lot of people yeah. would be at work for the day like, i think yeah. that would be a slower time for a bank i mean and also the freeways would have to be batshit crazy but
1: yeah i i guess as well it might have been between police shifts potentially maybe they're like oh there's a change over at 9 a.m or something maybe that's, that's what they did yeah, that, could, that would make sense because there's no explanation here. But to me, that was just an odd time to be doing it. I was like, well, wouldn't you do it like towards the end of the day or like, like when night is starting to come in so it's harder to track and trace you or whatever? But yeah, it must have been between shifts. Anyway, to come up with this time frame, Phillips had used a radio scanner to probably the one he was given back after 100 <laughs> days in prison uh, to monitor police transmissions prior to the robbery. As the two were walking in... <sighs> they were spotted by la police officers laurel uh, sorry lauren farrell and martin perello who were driving down laurel canyon in a patrol car that's the problem with this shit in like broad daylight um you Unexpected. walk in with yeah you walk in looking like a knight with a fucking submachine gun on your arm People are going to notice that shit at that time in the morning. Great point from Doctor J here. Lots of traffic on the four hundred five at that that time for sure. So it would have made the police response slightly harder, I guess. So if they weren't in the local area, it would have taken them a lot longer to get there. But they've already been spotted nine sixteen. They're not even through the door, and police are already raising the alarm. Um, yeah, so it's the beginning of the end, basically, right there. Busted. Offic- yep. Officer Farrell issued a call on the radio. 15A43 requesting assistance. We have a possible 211 in progress at the Bank of America. Apparently 211 is the code for a robbery. As they entered the bank, each armed with an arinko type 5.6 S1 rifle, Phillips and Emil forced a customer leaving the ATM lobby near the entrance into the bank and onto the floor. So they're not even actually into the bank at this point. They're already starting to scuffle with people. And as a result of that, a security guard inside uh, saw the scuffle and the heavily armed robbers and radio is his partner in the parking lot to call the police. The call, unfortunately, didn't go through due to a problem with the radio. So Ooh. but it's okay. The police have already seen it. So it yeah. doesn't matter. <laughs> they're already called. Yeah, Phillips shouted, This is a fucking holdup. I'm just doing a, a random <laughs> release. It's probably not what he sounded like. Before he and Emil opened fire into the ceiling in an attempt to scare the approximately 30 bank staff and customers and to discourage resistance. As if anyone's going to resist these two when they're armed to the teeth like that. Yeah. Um, Emil shot open the bulletproof door, which was designed to resist only low velocity rounds and gained access to the tellers and the vault. The robber's forced assistant manager, John Villagrana, to open the vault. Villagrana obliged and began to fill the robber's money bank, uh, money bag, sorry. However, due to a change in the bank's delivery schedule, the vault contained significantly less than the 750,000 the gunman had expected. Emil, this is where it gets really funny, (laughs) Emil, enraged at this development, argued with Villagrana and demanded more. An apparent show of frustration and probably roid rage. Emil then fired a full drum magazine of 75 rounds into the bank's safe, destroying much of the remaining money. You absolute fucking doofus. No wonder your business is failing. Wow. Yeah. I'm just going to so, shoot the money that is here. It's not enough money. I'm going to shoot it. I'm going <laughs> to make little money. I'm going to make more money by doubling <laughs> it, by cutting it in half. <laughs> You idiot. He then attempted to open the bank's ATM, but due to a change in policies, the branch manager no longer had access to the money inside. Before leaving, the robbers locked the hostages in the bank vault. That's a dick move because it's fully yeah. airtight. Um, they got out, they were all fine. Uh, but in the end, the two left with $303,305 and that. oh, three die packs, which they oh. hadn't checked for, they didn't see which immediately exploded, ru- ruining all of the money.
0: <laughs> oh, Bomp, man. <laughs> well,
1: oh, that's a bit they tried. They tried, and they've At already been At least the cops spotted. weren't called. At least the cops didn't see them walking through the fucking door did they <laughs> outside the first responding officers heard the gunfire within the bank and made the, another radio call reporting shots fired before taking cover behind their patrol car with the robbers uh, while the robbers were inside additional north hollywood division patrol and detective units arrived and took strategic positions at all four corners of the bank and established a perimeter around it they're circling the fucking wagons at this point like you're not getting out of here yeah um at approximately 9 24 a.m phillips ex- exited through the north door and after and after spotting a police cruiser 200 feet away open fire for several minutes
0: oh man what time did you say
1: 924 24 a.m oh, so they man. were in so there this... for eight minutes wow bang bang on Literally. eight minutes even though they decided to shoot up the bank vault and lock everyone in there they were in there for eight minutes so yeah in the initial shooting, Phillips wounded Sergeant Dean Haynes, Officer Martin Whitfield, James Zabaravan, Stuart Guy, and detectives William Krulak and Tracy Angeles, as well as three civilians that had been taken cover behind Sergeant Haynes' patrol vehicle. Jesus. That's a yeah. lot people. Yeah. From
0: watching the video, that it was Sounds just kind of right. spray and pray, man.
1: Basically, yeah, he just Utterly nailed everything that he could see. Um, Phillips also fired at an L.A. police uh, L.A.P.D. helicopter flown by Charles D. Perugia Jr. as it surveyed the scene from above, forcing it to withdraw to a safer distance. Phillips oh, uh, briefly retreated inside and then re-emerged through the north doorway, while Emil exited through the south doorway. It sounds like an episode of Scooby Doo where they're just like <laughs> running from door to door, <laughs> being chased. <laughs> like that. backwards and forwards. (laughs) Phillips and Emil continued to engage with officers firing sporadic bursts into the patrol cars and uh, that had been positioned on Laurel Canyon in front of the bank and in the parking lot across the street. Officers who were mostly armed with then LAPD standard issue Beretta 92F or FS 9mm pistols, Smith & Wesson model 15.38 special revolvers and 12 gauge Ithaca model 37 pump action shotguns continued to fire return fire um, at both robbers, but found quickly that their handguns and shotguns were would not penetrate the body armor worn by Phillips and Emil because they're, you know, big guys covered in armor. It's just not going to work.
0: And you're not getting close enough to have a exactly. handgun or shotgun be effective at all anyway.
1: Exactly, because they're like two hundred feet away. So the shotgun's yeah. gonna do nothing at that range, and your handgun's just gonna ping off them like it's like it's a derringer bullet or something like that. <laughs> right. This was compounded by the fact that most of the LA police officers' service pistols had insufficient range at longer distances where most officers found themselves uh, positioned relative to the bank's entrance. An officer was heard on the LAPD uh, frequency approximately 10 to 15 minutes into the shootout, warning other officers that they should uh, not stop the getaway vehicle. They've got semi-automatic weapons. There's nothing we can do to stop them. Um, Additionally, the officers were pinned down by the heavy sprays of gunfire coming from the robbers, making it extremely difficult to attempt a headshot with their handgun and several other officers, though. This is interesting. Acquired five AR-15-style rifle, rifles from a nearby gun shop to combat the robbers. Police business! We need every weapon that hasn't been taken by a, an obvious mental health patient or a man with curly hair who thinks he's Jesus or three toddlers in a trench coat. We need every weapon you have. Yeah,
0: they. it was weird because they just straight up jacked the gun stores it's not like yeah. they even paid for it
1: no they were just like commandeering this we're, we'll bring <laughs> it back later when it will be worth significantly less um two locations adjacent to the bank north parking lot uh provided good cover for the officers and detectives police uh likely shot phillips with the handguns while phillips was still firing and taking cover near the four vehicles adjacent to the north wall of the bank um or one location that Officer Richard Zielensky of Valley Traffic Division. Oh, not a good day to be uh, <laughs> trying to get people parking tickets, you. Uh, <laughs> used it for cover adjacent to Del Taco Restaurant. Nice. You could just stop in. Can I have, can I have some food, please? I'm in the middle of shooting. shoes. I'm commandeering this food. <laughs> I need, Give me a uh, moochie burrito business. now. <laughs> <laughs> I need as little water in that burrito as you can get. Uh, 351 feet away from Phillips, Zielinski fired 86 9mm rounds at Phillips and is believed to have hit Phillips during the exchange. Zielinski was also able to, uh, to use this position to draw Phillips fire away from Sergeant Haynes and Officer Whitfield, who were both wounded and had only marginal cover behind the trees across Laurel Canyon Boulevard. The other location that proved advan- uh, advantageous for the LAPD was the backyard of 6641 Agnes Avenue. A cinder block wall provided relative cover for several detectives shooting at Phillips with their 9 millimeter pistols. So that's yeah, Just
0: throw rocks. It's going to uh, be yeah, the just, same. Yeah, just like
1: shout harsh language at them from that distance. Uh, Detective Bancroft and Detective Harley in particular, who were in a position themselves behind the cover of, and fire between... 15 to 24 rounds at Phillips from a distance of approximately 55 feet. Well, that's a bit closer, but still.
0: Still pretty far, but still not
1: doing much with it. Um, After a meal backed the Chevrolet Celebrity. Do you want a car with great city mileage? Do you want a car (laughs) that soaks up the fire of poorly trained L.A. police officers? Come on down to your local Chevy dealership and inquire about the Chevy Celebrity. Chevy Celebrity. Wherever you need gunfire cover. Um, (laughs) I love the name, Chevy Celebrity. That's really weird. Um, Out of the handicapped, oh my God. He backed the Chevy Celebrity out of the handicapped space. You scumbag. He parked in a handicapped spot. You scumbag. In the north parking lot, (laughs) Phillips revealed a gunshot wound, uh, received a gunshot wound to his left wrist. Based uh, upon helicopter news footage that showed him react to the pain, but he sort of shrugged it off. If you see this, they get shot a lot and it oh, yeah. they just doesn't seem to phase them at all because they're on like barbiturates.
0: The, the King Kong thing where he's like, the, yeah, brr, yeah.
1: No, get away, get away. <laughs> yeah, but, I'm full of drugs. None of this is working. Um,
0: I got that car up here. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah you feel let's see the car yeah go on if you
1: can display the car for the people who are watching live on stream um oh yeah that's the chevy celebrity wow that is so 90s look at the rims on that thing it is an ugly unaerodynamic piece of shit right there (laughs) it's probably lined really well though so it can absorb those bullets yeah. really, really well. It's got that plush interior. Yeah, it's got that red leather so that the blood soaks in really nicely. <laughs> At the same time, approx- uh, approximate time, LAPD gunfire struck the heckler and Koch rifle that Phillips was firing, rendering it inoperable with a penetration to the receiver. Phillips discarded it and rearmed himself with another assault rifle from the trunk of the sedan. This trunk is sounded like Hermione's bag in fucking Harry Potter or something. It's like I was thinking... Harry- I was thinking the Supernatural Brothers. Yes. (laughs) Just fucking everything in there. Harry, go and fight the Dementors with this AK-47. After (laughs) LAPD radio operators received the second officer down call from police at the shootout, a tactical alert was issued. Why wasn't it issued before then? They were busy. They (laughs) were busy. Hello, he's (laughs) emptying round after round into our cars and there's 11 people on the ground. Um, the SWAT team: Donnie Anderson, Steve Gomez, Peter Wait, Waretta, Weir- and Richard Masser arrived 18 minutes after the shooting had begun. They're still in the parking lot at this point. They were armed with AR-15s and wore running shoes and shorts under their body armor. I don't know why we need that detail, as they had been on an oh, there we go, as they had been on an exercise run when they received the call. Wow. Okay. Ooh
0: dropped everything
1: and ran it like quickly uh there's a del taco nearby that's great um upon arrival they commandeered a nearby armored truck um yeah I don't know and apparently those things are just lying around uh which I mean, was used to ex- yeah oh it was used to extract uh wounded civilians and officers from the scene I kind of want your boy from Arizona to roll up in his SWAT tank
0: right. What's his name Joe Arpaio.
1: Joe Arpaio, he- sheriff Joe and uh, And
0: this is the beginning of when they you they justified buying tanks yeah
1: exactly i'm not here to help anyone i'm just trying to run over some dogs just leave me alone (laughs) yeah the vehicle to help people bust into wooden houses by smashing a massive hole in the side of it is ridiculous um while still in the parking lot emil was shot in the right buttock spicy uh (laughs) the right leg and the left forearm A fourth projectile that lacerated his upper right eye socket prompted him to duck behind the door of the getaway car in shock. Yeah, you fucking think he's loaded with bullets. Um, He subsequently abandoned his duffel bag of money, entered the getaway vehicle and started the engine. Just fucking run, mate. Just just go.
0: We can't no. run very
1: fast with that body armor on. No, it's like clunking along. <laughs> we can't see him. Well, I can hear him. He's definitely running around the corner. There's a sound of metal scraping together. <laughs> uh, Phillips retrieved the HK-91 from the open trunk and re- continued firing upon officers while walking alongside the sedan, using it for cover. This is a really amazing moment in the footage where you just see this guy like calmly walking alongside the car, uh, oh, yeah, it's- firing randomly. And
0: it's, it's kind of like a military dismounted sort of uh, approach to
1: it. Yeah, they, even though they, neither guy was trained in the military, it was incredibly well executed from two, essentially two civilians, non-combatants, who just seemed to know a lot about firearms. Um, so he's walking alongside the vehicle as he approached the passenger side of the getaway vehicle. He was hitting the shoulder and his rifle was struck in the receiver and magazine, but bullets fired by bullet, bullets, fired by police. After firing a few more shots with one arm, Phillips discarded the HK 91 and retrieved the Norinco type 56 before exiting the parking lot and retreat retreating onto the street while Emil drove down the road. Uh, yeah, don't stop till you reach Bucharest. Holy shit! Is this that's tor- what they look like? There's Jesus. their car. Yeah, there's the car. There's the guys. Uh, this is obviously the only people in live stream that can see this. They are. Yeah. Wow. They are loaded up to the nines with that stuff, and also the masks. This is at LA. Those. That's got to be really difficult, right there. What was? When masks. was the date? I don't remember. Um, it was February. So well, not it's super not hot yet. Yeah, it's probably warm, but I'd imagine that no matter how many barbiturates you take, wearing a a, a woolen mask while you're robbing a bank and being shot at, probably you're going to be a bit of sweat and smell in it. <laughs> um, so Emil is driven uh, He's now in the car. He's driving down the road, hopefully trying to reach Bucharest. I'd imagine uh, nine fifty two a.m. Phillips turned east on Archwood Street and took cover behind a parked semi truck, where he continued to fire at the police. Uh, Until his rifle jammed unable to clear the jam, he dropped the rifle and drew a Beretta 92 FS pistol, which he began firing. He was then shot in the right hand by officer Conrado Torres, causing him to drop the pistol. After retrieving it, he placed the muzzle under his chin and fired as he fell. Officer John Caparelli shot him in the torso, severing his spine. Either bullet may have been the fatal shot. Well, I mean, God damn.
0: I props to the cop for realizing that they never stay down. You know, he's going to
1: shoot Michael Myers like three or four times while he's on the ground. <laughs> Double and tap. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, they always get back up again. Although, hey, I, 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 I mean, he shot him once. Uh, this guy has literally just shot himself in the head. Uh, even if he does get up, he's not going to be very good at coordinating things. Probably not. No. Um, officers across the street continued to shoot Phillips's body several times while he was on the ground. After the after the firing had stopped, officers in the area surrounded Phillips, handcuffing him. Though he was obviously deceased at this point, um, it was standard procedure to arrest a criminal of this severity as if he were alive and remove his ski mask. Ah, oh, you don't feel like talking now, huh? Well, maybe this will <laughs> change your mind. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> it's like, Is he dead? I'll oh, make sure. Can you fire a few more rounds into him? Well, oh, We've shot him eight times. Maybe we should handcuff him as well, just in case. Take his mask off. Well, he looks kind of dead, but just to be sure. Um, I feel
0: like this this scene right here yeah. should serve as a lesson to everybody in the next Halloween or Friday the 13th movie. <laughs>
1: yeah. Just keep Empty shooting him while he's
0: down and when he's there, yeah. handcuff him.
1: Yeah, like if, if this person has attacked you and has already killed a bunch of your campmates or friends or whatever it is just empty your weapon into them and then reload and empty again because and they then handcuff them and take their mask off yeah just just to be sure Ooh, i'm gonna put it back on kind of ugly <laughs> um Emil's vehicle was uh uh sorry, sorry rendered inoperable after two of its tires were shot out by Uh, Police and the windscreen covered in bullet holes. At 9.56am, man, this is still going on half an hour later, he attempted to carjack a yellow 1963 Jeep Gladiator on Archwood by shooting at the driver, fuck me, Ah. who fled on foot three three blocks east of where Phillips died. He quickly transferred all of his weapons and ammunition from the getaway car, but was unable to operate the Jeep due to the driver engaging the electronic kill switch before fleeing. That is fucking smart. That's kind of cool. Although
0: yeah. I do that in Grand Theft Auto too, as I shoot at the yeah. cars, so somebody will jump out and run away, and they I can will stop will. running. Th-
1: Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the car. <laughs> to be honest, if someone had shot the car, like at me to get me out of the car, I'd just be like, look, you know, you've got to put your foot on the clutch and the windscreen wipers stick a little bit. Please don't kill me. Just take the car. Oh yeah. You no, know? that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I Don't want to like give them any issues to or any reason to shoot at me. Um, it's KCBs and K. C-A-L helicopters hovered overhead. A patrol car driven by SWAT officers Donnie Anderson, Steve Gomez, and Richard Massa quickly arrived and stopped on the opposite side of the truck to where the Chevy was stopped. Emil left the truck, took cover behind the original getaway vehicle, and engaged them in a a two-and-a-half-minute uninterrupted spree of gunfire. Emil's chest armor deflected a double tap from SWAT officer Anderson which briefly winded him before he continued firing. Jesus.
0: Dude, how do you not melt the barrels off of stuff? Just constant fire in like, that's going to get Two and a
1: half minutes. Yeah, exactly. This is like desperation spray and pray at this point. Anderson fired his uh, AR-15 below the cars and wounded Emil in his unprotective lower legs. it's the Achilles heel again. That's what always gets you. Uh, (laughs) He was soon unable to continue and put his hands up to show surrender which the LAPD tend to ignore anyway. So yeah, good luck with that. Uh, seconds after Emile's capitulation, officers rushed him uh, to pin him down. As he was cuffed, SWAT officers asked for his name, to which he replied, Pete, <laughs> which isn't your fucking <laughs> <Okay>. name. Uh, <laughs> when asked if there were any more suspects, he reportedly said, fuck you, shoot me in the head. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he only did that. This this might be more roid rage. Uh, but yeah, I... I Yeah, I think with thick Romanian accent, they're guessing that your name isn't Pete at this point. Yeah, probably. Ambulance personnel were following the uh, standard procedure in hostile situations by refusing to enter the hot zone as the area was not cleared and Emil was still considered to be dangerous. The police radioed for an ambulance, but Emil, loudly swearing profusely and still goading the police to shoot him, died before the ambulance and EMTs were allowed to reach the scene. Almost 70 minutes later, I mean, that's that. They let him bleed out, huh? Yeah, that's way beyond your golden hour, right there. Like yeah. you usually, ten minutes. He's cuffed. He's restrained. You've got to get someone in on that. That's fucking ridiculous. Uh, during a later lawsuit against retired police officer John Futrell and James Voitecki, the city jurors heard, and the city, sorry, the jurors heard testimony that involved a new ambulance crew that arrived but left with Emil after Voitecki allegedly told the crew to get the fuck out of here. During the trial, Wojciechki testified, he said something similar. Hmm. The ambulance driver testified he believed he was in danger by being in the area. The officers testified they tried to get the ambulance to come back or to get another one, but the plaintiffs focused on a point which Futral cancelled by uh, an ambulance call by telling dis- the dispatcher, I have no officers or citizens down, only a suspect. Yeah, you've got to love LAPD. Even in a situation like this, they still manage to come out looking like shit, don't yeah. they? It's kind of I'm, crazy.
0: Yeah, I can't, I can't wait to read this one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know it's it's so good. Um, later reports showed that Emil had been shot twenty-nine times in the leg and died from trauma due to excessive blood loss from two gunshot wounds in his left thigh. Most of the incident, including the death of Phillips and surrender of Emil, was broadcast live. On television by helicopters, which hovered over the scene and televised the and televised the actions uh, as they unfolded, over 300 law of, uh, law enforcement officers from various forces had responded to the citywide tactical alert. By the time the shooting shooting had stopped, Phillips and Emil had fired 1,100 rounds, approximately around every two seconds, and inspired basically every Grand Theft Auto mission you've ever played in your life yeah um,
2: hmm. countless
1: april, movies yeah countless <laughs> movies tv shows you name it all based on this one incident on april 17th 1997 police raided a house in anaheim traced to phillips and emil among the items items seized included incendiary 7.62 times 39 millimeter ammunition flak jackets uh, a ballistic helmet approximately four hundred thousand dollars in stolen cash and various firearms one particular firearm, a short-barreled AR-15 with an aftermarket red dot sight, was later released from evidence for use by law enforcement agency. Mine. Uh, taking that one. They took it. They okay. just like, uh, well, you're not getting that one back. Uh, that's useful. So, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, they're not getting either one of
1: them or anything back. No, Imagine. nobody's getting anything back At after this. this time. No. Seven months after the incident, the Department of Defense gave six hundreds surplus m16 rifles to the lapd which were issued to each patrol sergeant lapd patrol vehicles began carrying ar-15s as standard issue with bullet resistant kevlar plating in the doors as well which is man the year following the shootout 18 police officers of the lapd received the department uh, medal of valor for their actions and met president bill clinton uh, I was thinking around about this time, is he getting blowjobs from the intern? Yes, he is. Yes, yeah. yep, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> in 2003, a film about the incident was produced titled 44 Minutes The North Hollywood Shootout. In 2004, the Los Angeles Police Museum in Highland Park opened an exhibit featuring two life size mannequins of Phillips and Emil fitted with similar body armor and clothing they wore the weaponry they used, and also on display at the museum is the robber's getaway car and Officer Martin Whitfield's L.A. squad, far, a squad car. That, for me, is kind of ghoulish because oh, yeah. these men still have family alive and had nothing to do with this crime whatsoever. Um, Emil had two kids who were like really young at the time and would have been teenagers by the time this exhibit opened. I just find that really disturbing. Um, yeah, by all means do it like twenty, thirty years later, but like fucking three, four years, that's kind of crazy, right? Found
0: um, that. Uh, oh, that's that's their... they've got
1: homicide uh written yep. behind them there yeah, that's so that's their that's... police department thing, yep oh wow that, i I not yeah, I find that grotesque, uh to be honest, that's kinda. kind of horrible, yeah, yeah, and I get it, you know the thing is they didn't kill anyone well i think they, they killed someone in an earlier shooting but in this one nobody died there were um i think i may have missed the part but um 12 poli- sorry 12 police officers and eight civilians were injured and the two suspects died in the shootout so people were injured and obviously it's an incredibly traumatic event but the only people that died were the suspects right so, well the, the the actual villains of the piece but i just yeah um this is a kind of a weird one because um, it's led to so much knock-on effect for uh, police, the arming of police and carrying of semi-automatic weapons, but I've got to ask, what do you think of this situation? How are you going to rate them as well? Okay,
0: well, it, it's, it's an insane situation, and yeah, I want to rate the police as idiots, because yeah. there was other ways to handle that. This could have been an opportunity mm. for police and policing to shift to a less reactive engagement dangerous violent escalation of things yeah. is their standard operating and it could have shifted to investigation apprehension mm-hmm. tracking you know the stuff that would have saved a bunch of people's lives and a whole lot of wasted bullets
1: exactly um, yeah so it's it's interesting as well because i was just surprised because we're talking 1996 now and the rodney king thing and the L.A. riots were only a few years before this, and mm-hmm. LAPD still had, like, a really bad reputation around this time. And I they still kind of do, right? It's still LAPD. But yeah. I'm just surprised that the first two police officers that saw them going into the back, I am really surprised they didn't immediately open fire on those two, to be honest. Yeah,
0: you well, you kind of got to yeah i i'm surprised too because i mean i yeah. guess it is north hollywood they could have been filming a movie there i don't <laughs> yeah but i mean that wasn't the type of movies they were doing then i mean no. dirty harry it wasn't like shoot 'em ups like that
1: no so no that that, that this, so this is like i mean i guess we had heat maybe two years before this which yeah. had a very famous shootout scene in it um but yeah man uh,
0: um yeah <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> this this one's difficult to write, I think, because they're they're clearly idiots. They Fight.
0: caused so much BS, and mm. I mean, the police that let them go, the court system that let them go yeah. with their stuff back when they, I mean, clearly they were moving that direction. I understand you don't want to charge people for crimes before they commit stuff, but they sure. stole a car and they illegally had weapons.
1: Yeah, they had. If a lot you're using of weapons. a
0: firearm in the commission of a crime. Mm. Or if you have it on you in the commission of a crime, stealing a car,
1: mm. you should automatically get the time for a violent crime. I would I would imagine so. And also, we're talking about explosives. So, like, at what point did we cross into, like, domestic terrorism? Well, I don't like... think that was a thing then. But yeah.
0: Oh, that's what I was going to mention, too. The riots just before that is the only reason L.A. had a SWAT team at that time. Wow. that's That's what created the special weapons and
1: tactics. That's really interesting. So had that not happened, could you imagine if this had taken... I mean, obviously they got some AR-15s from a local gun shop, but could you imagine how this would have played out had there not been a SWAT team around?
0: I, I think I'm, they might have not I, opened fire on them when they left and just trailed true. them with a helicopter. Yeah. Probably
1: would have done, yeah. They'll have had an army of people doing the OJ thing Yeah, right after them. But also, like that's really interesting that... They might have gotten away with it, actually. Possibly. Yeah. They would
0: have got shot a lot less. If they They're hadn't sure, raised yeah. a, a gun sh- a gun store or got SWAT team there.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I was going to say before you rated this, like the LAPD and the court system certainly at, at fault for the response and also the initial part where they could have stopped them. So th- there's idiocy on that part, and we typically yeah. find that after these big moments. But what do you make of... Larry and Emil, the, the, the two North Hollywood shootout guys. The the level
0: of violence mm. and just aggressiveness with it and yeah. the drug use. and the, yeah. It was a horrible event. So mm. I have to say that they're at least in 86.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: Be, but, well, you know what? They get higher than that. I'm going to go with an 89 because mm. they caused at least in some part, police militarization. Yeah. And the over-dramatization or mm-hmm. the... What's what's the word? Were you create a hero out of a villain?
1: Oh, right, yeah. I um, guess they became anti-heroes, right? So. Yeah, they
0: romanticized gun battles mm. after this. And yeah. who knows, maybe it led to a lot of the stuff where people are running around with weapons shooting a whole bunch of people outside yeah. of robberies.
1: I think there's there's an element of it com- contributing to that culture where, I think so. especially with the way the footage is shown, because you know, we don't have any audio other than what's been, you know, other than the live commentary from the cameras, and you, you can see them reacting to getting shot and stuff, but they seem to just carry on, and yeah. people think that's kind of normal, but what they don't realize is that these guys were on a massive amount of drugs, so either they couldn't feel it or they just didn't care, so they carried on, and it makes it look like oh, yeah, it's kind of like a video game. They're just kind of going around and shooting, and this goes on for like half an hour. So, yeah, it definitely contributed to the culture of shootouts, I guess you could yeah, say. Yeah,
0: well, and retrospectively looking back at it after playing Grand Theft Auto, if you hadn't yeah. been around then or seen that, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's
1: what? what's wrong with it? It looks normal. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> totally normal, these two guys, covered head-to-toe in body armor, firing over a 1,000 rounds over half an hour. It's, it's kind of crazy. So, yeah, I think- I, I'm... Yeah, I'm comfortable with an 89, I think, because of the violence and
0: the unintended spread of bad crap.
1: Yeah, I think, like you say, the response to this from, like, organized policing in major cities, um, not universally, but, you know, in major, like, hubs where violent crime was maybe a bit of an issue, um, I think the response has been overwhelmingly overreactive. I, mm-hmm. I don't think the police need um, the weaponry that they do in the United States. I understand, you know, uh, it's a culture because everyone has a gun, but I, I feel like it's overkill. And actually some of it's leaked over into this country because there, obviously we have armed units in the UK. It's rare that they get used, but whenever they get used, there is never a shootout because nobody has guns except them. It's over very quickly and usually someone, it was a Mark Duggan case, he had a criminal record, his car was stopped by police, and he was shot, like, straight away. Didn't have any weapons on him, nothing at all, they just shot him. And the Brazilian guy, who, this is after the 7-7 bombing in London, there was a Brazilian uh, engineer who, like, they thought was a terrorist, because he lived nearby, and had, like, slightly suspicious activity or something. Anyway, they followed him onto a London Underground bus and just shot him. Uh, sorry, a wow. London Underground train and just shot him like right there. And then uh, Giovanni dos Santos or something like that. Anyway, just killed him in broad daylight in the middle of rush hour. His family is still fighting for compensation to this day. He, had nothing, he, he was not a terrorist, had nothing on him at all, no weapons, no suspicious activity. It was just really bad intel. So that kind of escalation of the armament of police, I think, While you can say it's a good thing that they are armed and they respond the way they do to certain situations, I think the response to other situations has been completely over the top. Oh, Um, yeah. 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 Um, Even, like, basic stuff. This is a big story in the UK in the last couple of years. Uh, A former athlete, a former footballer called Dalian Atkinson who um, was having a bit of a psychotic break outside of his father's house, and he was, like, trying to kick the door in, stuff like that. Two police officers showed up and they tasered him. They tasered him for so long that he died. Oh. And when he was lying on the ground dead after being tasered, the female officer who had like been part of it kicked him in the head. Oh, kicked his corpse in the head. So, yeah, they're both no longer police officers. And actually, I think one of them went to prison for murder. So, yeah, yeah I know. And that's just a taser. So kind of crazy the level of militarization in normal human yeah. life in some parts of the world now.
0: And I, I, I too, I see that you, you want to react to like active shooters and engagements yeah. like in a certain way. But I feel like if, if you're needing military equipment to do your <laughs> job, you should probably call the military.
1: Yeah. Like, aren't they, they're a response. I guess that it's like a question of like time and response and SWAT has its place. But I just wonder how many, because I, you don't hear too much about like arm like major scale armed robberies don't really hear much about it anymore um Not so much. i'm just wondering why these are that necessary like why do police need semi automatic weapons anymore the war on drugs oh that's right the thing that hasn't worked because it's yeah. a war on a noun and that yeah. never ever works you can't defeat a noun they're invincible um but yeah uh war on drugs uh <laughs> which has been ridiculous at this point we've got to say like look you basically, the United States has legalized cannabis, and uh, the world has become significantly better as a result of that. Isn't it time we look into the control of other substances as well and also provide support for people who have addiction problems, get them access to free treatment so they do not become reliant on these substances and control the way in which they're used and like make sure they're not cut with crap anymore so that people keep dying of it? Oh, yeah. So, that's yeah.
0: that's the hot new thing, man. I don't know fentanyl it's death,
1: fentanyl death, prescription painkillers. It it's not so much a problem here. It was a huge. Well, it well is still a huge problem in the United States. And yeah, I think that there needs to be a radical change in the way that people look at drugs. This war on drugs that's been going on since what, like Nixon? Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah. it's
0: weird because it's like, dude, cigarettes are cool, alcohol is cool. Yeah, but, but these specific these substances do the same thing i mean yeah. alcohol to me here in the states is the cause of domestic abuse and mm. violence and fights and stabbings and crazy shit all the yeah. time but it's cool
1: yeah and there's very little control over that and people are still going i guess that you guys have like it's weird the, the uh the age for drinking in the uk is 18 but you can have like uh there's a rule where you can have a pint with a meal when you're 17 which i think is a really great way of introducing that like you can have one pint if you order a, a big meal so you're kind of consuming it with food so you're not getting quite as drunk and also like private consumptions like five or something so you can introduce it at the dinner table when uh, your kids are becoming adolescents you can be like okay we'll give you a little bit of wine i mean there are there's problems with alcohol all over the world but the more you make it taboo the worse the problems are typically mm-hmm. So, you know, you introduce it appropriately at a young age, then that's fine. And if you talk to people about drug use from a young age, if you talk to them about addiction problems at the young age, if you talk to them about appropriate behavior, appropriate use of like sexualization, which is another issue as well. If you talk to them about that continuously from a young age, you talk to them about what's right, what's wrong, how to deal with it, who to talk to if you have a problem, if you approach it from a place of empathy If somebody says they have a problem, if you approach it the right way, these problems go away, but we're still reacting inappropriately and it's still leading to situations like this. Anyway, that's kind of a rant. That's a whole other thing. It's a good
0: rant. It was a good rant. We should be way more proactive than reactive (laughs) in all of this stuff. And someday we'll pull our heads out of our asses and make the world a better place.
1: And I do know that there's a big hot topic thing in the not just America, but I think in parts of the world as well about. Oh, uh, you shouldn't be giving children of a certain age sex education. You absolutely should be telling children what is right and wrong in sex because from a reasonably young age, because you stop you you know people talk up and you stop having victims. Uh, when that happens, you get them to recognize what is inappropriate behavior, and it stops it from happening. Yes, so.
0: and and I I feel like I finally did something right as a parent, and I had a a good conversation with my kids about that and how to talk about it and when you should and how you can and what's good and what's bad and, you know, get rid of the taboo and the stigma and the fear and create a safe place for education and growth.
1: Knowledge is power at the end of the day. You, You trust people with the knowledge of what is and what isn't right and, you know, it leads them to be better behaved citizens. It leads them to recognize issues with people around them from it, which can stop victims from being created at not just sex, but drugs, alcohol, gambling, every kind of thing you get, eating, any kind of addiction you can think of, guns, all of this stuff is intertwined. <laughs> it's all about education from a young age in an appropriate way that uses information and that is empathetic and teaches them about the consequences. It's really not that difficult, but for some reason, we're terrified of doing this and it's causing situations like this, where you have massive bodybuilders getting hold of drugs and holding up things. Anyway, that was like like, 25 (laughs) years ago. That was a long time ago where things have changed a lot since then, but this is, this is not a political rant. I just feel like this is a very straightforward solution. That's been proven to work and people still aren't quite doing it. So, yeah,
0: I don't know why, and I don't know how I can help, but some someday I'll figure it out. Maybe, maybe by talking about it like this with you
1: maybe with more people talk about it in a way that looks at the, the core issues as opposed to going for the emotive, stop talking to my child about sex or, <laughs> or drugs or stop talking about drugs. Like, no, you're just making it worse by doing that, man. So anyway, uh, ran over a really nice score for Emil and Larry who, yeah, one of the most incredible videos that you will ever see. If you ever do decide to watch it, one of the most incredible stories as well. And, um yeah, the guy who is kind of the prototypical gangster of the early part of the 20th century. What was his name again? Arnold Rothstein. Arnold Rothstein, yeah. The kind of the first ever true modern gangster. And that's really fascinating stories this week. Arnold Rothstein was incredibly successful, but died incredibly young. These two were also successful in their own way and died young, and had both instances, had they known when to stop, then they would probably, you know, have lived long, happy lives. I was going to say they're both still alive today. Arnold Rothstein would be 145 <laughs> fucking years old. <laughs> but, you know, they would have had a long successful lives, but they couldn't because there was something in them that made them want to carry on doing the thing that was incredibly dangerous, despite being already successful enough. Yes, so just yep. Know the line, and stop. Move on to something mm-hmm. else. Discover a hobby. Maybe go fishing. Whatever works. Just stop with the dangerous shit. Um, so that's our show for this uh, week. What did you... Because You you really enjoyed researching that, and I did too as well, even though it was a weird story. Um, that was really interesting. Thank you for doing that, Derek, because I never knew that about that guy. So many connections there.
0: Yeah, I want, I want to give a shout out to our fans that talk to us and tag us and things on Instagram, because yeah. you guys are awesome. That's fun. I had somebody friend me on that beat star too and they are better than me oh. also <laughs>
1: <laughs> you find yeah you got someone to play against on Beatstar. that's awesome yeah. as a result of this that's great um excellent yeah thank you so much and also i forgot to mention the bloody socials at the top of the hour again and i've still not got our banner rolling up i thought i'd set that up but apparently i hadn't I um them? if you would like to follow <laughs> us on social media you can go to history's greatest idiots on instagram or go to at Greatest Idiots on Twitter. If you would like to sling us some cash, go to patreon.com slash idiots. We will be looking into changing that soon, So uh, different because we've got like a million different levels and nobody's using it. So we'll look at different ways of uh, making that and hopefully get you guys involved. And uh, also linked in the notes of this podcast and in the actual YouTube, if you're watching it on YouTube, there are links to our individual social media. So if you want to go and check us both out there, Lev uh, and Derek, uh, myself and Derek have both got plenty of links there that you can use. Although Derek, it's no longer available on Twitter. No, but bailed. You bailed. I think I'm not far off from that either. So, um, yeah, give us a follow. And until next episode, Derek, would you like to say goodbye, please? Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you so much. And we will see you again in a couple of weeks. Take care now. Bye.